the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, today is supposed to be, is that the 21st is the first day of spring? Is that right? Doesn't feel like spring. I don't know. Miles is saying, beats me. (laughs) All I know is I had to take my pontoon to get to work today. Well, (laughs) in any event, good afternoon. Welcome to this Tuesday, March 21st edition of Lifeline. And at the very start of the show, as I say, welcome. Let me remind you, drive safe. It's kind of brutal out there again today. And uh, our operations manager wanted me to remind you that if there are moments during the show tonight when I it sounds like a a little bit of a max headroom. (laughs) on the radio. Uh, That's because we use microwave to backhaul or to transmit our signal from our studios to our transmitter site. And uh, the microwave in these conditions acts like a big wind sail. And so if occasionally you hear a little bit of something funny on your radio, uh, that's either your host or perhaps just the wind. And uh, hopefully we'll all get through this current storm together. And as I say, as you're heading uh, home today, wherever you might be headed toward on this Tuesday, be sure you drive safe and sound and keep a close eye on the road ahead. To keep you company as you're heading down that road uh, this afternoon, we've got lots of important things to talk about. And I want to start the program uh, today on a topic that's been capturing a lot of news over the last week or two. Um, And the term perhaps to use, you hear about banks and banking, and you hear the phrase, maybe when you walk through the double doors of your bank, you see the sign that says FDIC insured, might not mean much to you. But perhaps if you had more than $250,000 in a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, well, FDIC insurance means everything to you. And if you had more than $250,000, well, um, you're in kind of a, what do the British say, a sticky wicket, old chap, right now. We're going to try to sort of peel back the layers of the onion related to um, what might be just a blip on the radar screen. Is it the start of something bigger? Are we headed to more of a 2008-2009 banking disaster? What exactly is going on with the struggles being faced by banks such such as First Republic Signature, Credit Suisse, and of course, here locally, Silicon Valley Bank. Well, to give us some insights, uh, maybe to educate us uh, to the point of making better decisions as well, uh, I know of no one better, since this is really up his alley, than my guest tonight. He, of course, is the host of the syndicated talk show, The Bob Zadek Show. He's a best-selling author. He is both a CPA and an attorney by trade, and joins us tonight to help us better understand what's going on, and most importantly, when you hear the government say, oh, don't worry, this won't cost the taxpayers a dime. Is that necessarily true? And welcome to Mr. Bob Zadek. Bob, it's always a privilege to have you join us on the program. And uh, 
Some people that don't do business with these institutions may not all to be together be too worried. Others might hear comments made by uh, the Fed chair or by Janet Yellen and feel a bit reassured that don't worry, the government is going to take care of everything. No one's going to get hurt, particularly in the Silicon Valley Bank uh, debacle. But is that necessarily true? Uh, well, it it may very well be true, Craig. First of all, thank you for inviting me on your show. You made reference to the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Of that, the four words that are represented by the acronym FDIC, two are not true. They're just fake. The two words in those four words, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, are deposit and corporation. Why do I say deposit, which is relevant to today's show? Deposits suggest that when you make what you call a deposit, you are letting somebody else hold your property which means you expect to get your property back. Like putting your car in the parking garage. There you're making a deposit. But why do I quarrel with the word deposit? Because a deposit, as a matter of law, is a loan by the air quotes depositor to the bank. It's a loan. So a depositor, air quotes, is making a loan to the bank, which means the bank is not holding your property. The bank is borrowing money from you. Not only are they borrowing money, but they're not even paying any interest. And if they do pay interest, they're paying a ridiculously low amount of interest. So you are making an unsecured, interest-free loan to a bank. That's what a deposit is. Now, what about corporation? Well, corporation would suggest it's a separate entity. But the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is not a corporation. It's just your favorite borrower, the federal government. It's not a separate corporation. So you are making unsecured loans to an organization which is insured by the federal government and not by a corporation. Why does any of this matter? Well, because nobody makes a credit decision about whether the borrower, the bank, is good for the money. Well, for the average consumer, it kind of doesn't matter because ever since the Great Depression, the federal government has said, you don't have to worry about your money that you're lending to a bank. We, the federal government, guarantee that the bank will pay it back. So now you feel a lot better about your loan because the federal government guarantees you'll get it back. But that guarantee is not unlimited. If you have a deposit which exceeds $250,000, not the typical consumer deposit, but many commercial deposits exceed 250 by a multiple of that. Well, the amount in, on deposit in excess of 250 is not insured, which means you're on your own. 
So if you own a business with a $3 million deposit at, let's say, Silicon Valley Bank, let's pick that one at random, shall we? Okay, if you have a $3 million deposit at Silicon Valley Bank, you, Mr. Private Corporation or other entity, you have just made an unsecured loan to Silicon Valley Bank where it's totally unsecured, except for $250,000, because that's the amount of the federal guarantee. What happened with Silicon Valley Bank is it tanked, because it was run by, it was not run by bankers, and indeed the bankers who did run the bank didn't know what they were doing or didn't care what they were doing, because they were being well rewarded. So the bank was mismanaged. Like many businesses, it was mismanaged. And like businesses that are mismanaged, it went out of business because of its mismanagement. Well, like any business that goes out of business, that means it doesn't have enough to pay its creditors. In this case, the creditors were depositors. Because as I said, depositors are not depositors, they're lenders. So Silicon Valley Bank was about to stiff, at least in the short run, all of its business depositors who had money on deposit in excess of 250. Well, the federal government decided, uh, for whatever reason it decides things, if there is a reason, that it was not good for the country for businesses which made unsecured loans to Silicon Valley Bank. It is not good for the country for those businesses to fail and not get their money back. So therefore, the federal government said, we know we only guaranteed $250,000, but you know what? We changed our mind. We'll guarantee everything to make sure that nobody gets nervous about bank deposits. Thus, the federal government came in with, yes, it was a bailout. Biden, you're lying to the American public. It was absolutely a bailout. Janet Yellen, you're lying to the American public. Of course it was a bailout. Let's not quarrel with words. The federal government came in, and even though the businesses are the ones who made bad decisions, by depositing, lending too much money to Silicon Valley Bank, even though they should be punished by losing their money because they made a bad decision, but the government doesn't like people to lose money even if they lost money because of their own stupidity. So the government came in once again and, and encouraging what is called moral hazard. We may discuss that in this show. The government said, patting businesses on the head. There, 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 there. We're sorry you made a bad decision. We will save you from your own stupidity, and we will protect you against loss. Now, now Bob, I'm curious. Silicon Valley Bank. Now, now, to that degree, I'm curious. So that that explains why folks that had more than two hundred fifty thousand, which obviously is not not the average banking person who's you know paying paying the water bill with a checking account, they're largely going to be businesses that use these funds for the purchase of goods. They use these funds to pay their employees, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if they had more than two hundred fifty thousand on deposit, uh, Janet Yellen has reassured them, "Don't worry, we'll cover." 
at all, won't cost the taxpayers anything, wink, wink, uh, which we know is not true. But but I have to wonder, is there not yet another group involved with the bank that are nevertheless still on the hook? And that is that while the federal government might be bailing out depositors, does that necessarily include the investors? Or are they facing the same liability as somebody who, for example, back in the day, invested money in Enron? Now, now it gets interesting. The federal government, uh, because remember, Biden said in another lie to the American public that he's a capitalist. So even though he's not, but but the federal government, Biden's administration, um, has determined that investors, the stockholders of the bank, are wiped out or will be wiped out if when the assets are liquidated there's not enough to pay all the debts we don't know what's going to happen with the assets but right now the investors the stockholders of the bank the bank was publicly held the the stockholders of the bank will lose money and also and this is very weird and not much is written about this there are bondholders people who bought bonds, which are promissory notes, as we all know, uh, people who, invest, who bought bonds issued by Silicon Valley Bank, they are like investors, except they invested through bonds rather than stock. The bondholders are not protected. That struck me as being mighty weird, because bondholders lent money to the bank, as did depositors. But the depositors who lent money, as I said in the intro to the show, the depositors aren't cold lenders, but they really are. That's what it is. It's a loan. But lenders who are depositors got paid in full. Lenders who are bondholders get stiffed or may get stiffed. Makes no sense. It's the kind of irrationality that only President Biden could engineer. Yeah, it, it seems to be terribly arbitrary. And, and of course, this, like the average onion, has so many unique layers to it. When we come back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. I know that certainly for listeners, one of the big questions is, all right, if I didn't have any involvement as a bondholder or a depositor or as a traditional investor with Silicon Valley Bank, um, and likewise, I don't do business with uh, First Republic, which is based here in the Bay Area, or even Signature Bank, I'm in the clear, right? This is not going to impact my bank. Or could it possibly? And... I made a reference a moment ago to Enron. Uh, there, there might be kind of an interesting parallel here if you have been around long enough to remember the the energy company Enron that got themselves in a, a bit of a sticky wicket. Um, and there, there is a how should we call it a bit of a bookkeeping sleight of hand. At least that's in in layman's terms that may have been contributory to this problem. Bob Zadek has got to be hands down one of the best qualified individuals to speak to all of this. So if you're wondering what exactly happened here, what what is it that even allowed this to take place in the first place? I thought after 2008, 2009, the banks were all safe again. And is there a possibility that I need to be worried about my life savings in my own bank? We'll get to those Questions for Bob Zadek and his answers as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, to be sure, there are many complexities related to the banking system. And, you know, for the average Joe out there, you got a little money, you pay your bills. You don't really think about much of this unless maybe somebody gets their hand on your your uh ATM card and begins to start, you know, withdrawing money from uh, from your bank account. But broader issues related to the security of the banking system and some of the rules that have been put in place and then taken away, ironically, down through at least uh, 20th and 21st century history, it seems that we'll have a big economic crisis. Then Congress will sweep in. There will be all kinds of new regulations put in place. And then we'll coast along for a while. Then somebody comes in and says, oh, that's exaggerated, onerous. Let's get rid of it. Then the next event happens and we cobble the rules back together again and peat and repeat. And that, to a degree, has sort of been the fate of things like the Glass-Siegel Act, which has its roots back on the uh, during the period of the Great Depression, followed by Dodd-Frank that occurred during the last economic issues that we had tied into the, the derivatives debacle of 2008-2009. And now here we are yet once again. One of the interesting aspects of this in relationship to regulation and what banks are permitted to do and not do with how they manage your money and how they're held accountable for all of that uh, ties in perhaps to a company that you might recall from a season of economic challenges, Enron. And Enron got itself in trouble for something called Mark to Market. And much to my shock, Bob, going over the notes for our conversation today, I saw that same phrase used in relationship to the bond holdings of Silicon Valley Bank. And I thought to myself, wow, here we go again. For the benefit of listeners, kind of help walk us through, number one, what what the comparison is between the behavior of SBV and Enron, and, and, and why there has been these cycles of regulation, deregulation, regulation, and deregulation, and did we essentially manufacture this crisis? You understand that for me to answer that multi-part question, you don't need a guest. You need a TED Talk. <laughs> I don't have Point well taken. <laughs> and by the way, before I answer the question, right before the break, and if you don't believe me, play the tape later on, you used the phrase that intrigued me. You made reference to the average onion and talking about layers. I was trying to figure out during the entire break what exactly an average onion was <laughs> and what was it, what would an onion be like that was outside the average. <laughs> so we can discuss that later. Uh, when I'll call you on your cell phone late tonight and we'll discuss the concept of average onion. You're on. But let's get back to business. Let's get back to business. Okay. Mark to market. Mark to market is the following concept. Individuals and businesses own assets that fluctuate in value. Obviously, the best example is, of course, securities. But it can be any asset that fluctuates in value. Now, uh, banks record their transactions on financial statements, an income statement that reports profits during a period, and a balance sheet, which is 
property owned and debts owed at a point in time, a photograph of the moment. Okay, so the question is, how do you record those assets on your balance sheet? Well, the accountants generally require that assets be carried on their balance sheet at their historical cost, at what it costs to buy it. And you don't record any profit or loss until you sell the asset. So you might have an asset on your books that's carried at a cost of a million dollars, but it's worth $500,000. Well, okay, on your books you carry that asset at a million dollars because that's what accountants require, and that makes sense, because otherwise you have to appraise all your assets all the time, and it's too cumbersome. So that's history. That's how you keep a balance sheet. Now, however, however, when uh, many institutions are required, financial institutions, by the government to mark to market, which means deviate and it's, it's required from typical accounting standards of recording assets at cost, and you have to, every time you prepare financial statements, carry the assets at their present value, so that somebody reading the financial statement knows not what you paid for an asset a long time ago, but what it's worth today, what it's worth today. So when you look at a financial statement of a financial institution that has to mark to market, you have a better idea what that institution is worth today, because the assets are at present market value, not at historical cost. Okay, all of that is background, but I had to do it. Okay, so now, Let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank and what happened. Well, Silicon Valley Bank bought, uh, as many banks do, as a very safe investment, government bonds. And they bought government bonds a while ago, a couple of years ago, when the bonds were yielding 2 and 3%. And let's say they paid $10 million for those bonds. As interest rates go up, over time, a bond paying 2% interest is not worth so much. Because why buy a bond worth paying 2% if you can buy one paying 6%? So the value of that bond decreases, the market value decreases as interest rates go up. But the banks continue to carry those assets at their historical costs. Now, that's defended by saying Whatever the bond may be worth today doesn't matter because at maturity, the federal government will pay you the face amount of that bond. And so ultimately you're gonna get the face amount of the bond when it matures. But in the meanwhile, if you had to sell it today, you would sell it at a loss. Okay, why does any of this matter? Because Silicon Valley Bank had a run on the bank. Depositors, who lend money to the bank, remember, depositors got nervous. Those who had deposits over 250 because they weren't insured. So they said to the bank, which they had the right to do, we want our money back. We're nervous about you being able to pay us back. And there was the classic run on the bank. Well, the bank 
ought to be able to say, no problem, everybody wants their money back, we'll just sell stuff, get the cash from selling it, and pay the depositors back. No problem. The problem was that the assets they owned were these bonds, which will be worth par value in eight years, but they're worth garbage today because interest rates are up, so the bond values are down. So they didn't have, they couldn't raise the cash to pay depositors back because the bonds were worth much less than they would be worth in the future. Had the bank been required to mark to market, they would have had to maintain solvency. They would have had to sell bonds a long time ago to keep liquid so they can pay back depositors. But they didn't. They had bonds that were worth too little to meet the cash they needed to repay depositors. Thus, the ceiling came crashing down. And that's why mark to market was so important. Had the bank been required to mark to market, they would have had to, a long time before last Friday, they would have had to be selling bonds or raising additional money or raising additional equity to have the cash on hand to pay back depositors if there was a run on the bank. And therefore, they wouldn't have been a run on the bank because the bank would have had enough money. So because they were not required to mark the market, they were not required to keep enough cash on hand and therefore depositors panicked and the bank failed as it should have. And are there similarities here, Bob, between the events that basically conspired against Silicon Valley Bank that also would help us understand what happened with First Republic, what happened with Signature? And, I, and I've got to imagine it, it's it's going to be different in the case of Credit Suisse since they are a Switzerland-based bank that uh, I, I guess kind of blows the idea out of the water that anything that's Swiss-based is rock-solid and, and impenetrable to, to any kind of global event. So are we all, all of these smaller banks all facing the same kind of similar situation? And if so, undoubtedly, many listeners are wondering, well, gee, if this has happened with some of these other banks, could it happen to mine? Because your listeners have the good judgment to listen to your show, that's why they call listeners, because they listen to your show, they will not have to wonder about anything because they're about to know. Now, you lumped in Signature Bank with Silicon Valley Bank. And to some degree, that lumping in makes sense. However, there is something sinister that has to be brought into the conversation. And that sinister event can be summarized with one word, crypto. Why is crypto important? Well, crypto as a uh, financial instrument is something which the U.S. government in general and banks and countries in general are fearful of because crypto operates like a private currency outside of the control of government. Well, anything outside of the control of government is a threat to its power. And therefore, governments inherently don't want things outside that they can't control. So governments don't like crypto. Why does that matter? Well, because our banking system has a very unpleasant 
but very real attribute. The government, our federal government, has a while ago discovered that if you control the banking system, you control all of American society. And therefore, you can use the power over the banking system to effect changes in society that you can't do through, the, through Congress because it's unconstitutional. For example, government, the federal government doesn't like, at, at least Democratic governments, don't like guns all that much. So, but they can't make guns illegal because of the Second Amendment. So what do they do? They, they, the bank regulators, what do bankers have to do with guns? The bank regulators tell their banks that they regulate, we don't think having gun shops as depositors are a good idea. And therefore, since we regulate you, we will be unhappy with you if you accept deposits from gun stores, because we don't like guns. Now, they just, they are very subtle. We will not be happy with you. Now, if your regulator says we will not be happy with you, you pay attention because the regulator can harm you. So therefore, banks took the cue of the regulators and closed out deposit accounts of gun, sh gun shops. They were, they were legal enterprises, but they were just told you can't have deposit accounts. Well, that means you can't exist. Nobody can operate a business. So using the banking system, which is regulated, they caused great harm to gun shops. Now we look at crypto. The government can't criminalize crypto, although they fear it. So they tell Signature Bank, which is heavily lending to and accepting deposits from crypto businesses, which are lawful. They can't close up a, a lawful crypto business, but they tell the banks, we are not happy with you if you do business with the crypto industry. So therefore, when Silicon Valley Bank uh, started to run into trouble and they had to be rescued by another bank, the government said to the bank, which is rescuing Signature Bank, okay, take over Signature Bank, protect all the depositors, except we don't want you to take over the deposit accounts with or the loans to crypto businesses. Therefore, the crypto businesses are hung out to dry, and part of the reason Silicon, uh, Signature Bank failed is because the government looked at crypto, even though it's lawful, with disfavor. So, it, when you raise Signature Bank to discuss on this show, it was a, a clear invitation, or I had to discuss, how the banking industry is used to accomplish governmental goals that governments cannot do through the courts or through Congress because of the Constitution. They do so in the shadows 
by influence over the banking system. So they essentially really can, can can arbitrarily decide who 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 they're making king and who they're 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 making a pauper. And I have to wonder, in relationship, coming full circle to this theme with Silicon Valley Bank, one of the comments that I've heard raised by members of Congress is that. Based on where we're located and sort of the prevailing mental attitude over issues, be it environmental, societal, global warming, et cetera, et cetera, that there appeared to be a heavy dose of decision making into investments related with FBV that was less about the quality and caliber of the investment in and of itself and whether or not it was a smart decision or a dumb decision from just an economic stability standpoint that some of the direction of bank leadership tended to push towards this idea of um, of again being you know socially or environmentally sensitive yeah. which means that they may have perhaps made some investment decisions that might have looked good from a social sensitivity standpoint or an environmentally sensitive standpoint but necessarily not necessarily from an economically smart standpoint is that accurate that's totally accurate, but that's a whole other conversation because of the political um, and social composition of Silicon Valley Bank. The directors of the 12 or so directors of the bank, directors are important. They make sure the officers and management do the right thing. And the directors of the bank... Only one of the 12 directors was a banker. The others were environmentalists or were ESG, environmental, social, and governance people, or were activists or the like, or those who were in political favor in Silicon Valley or in California or in the federal government. So the directors of the bank who are supposed to be the smartest kids on the block were a bunch of kindergartners who were playing, using the bank to accomplish social goals instead of the rather boring but important job of making sure a bank was well managed. That was totally outside of anybody's purview. They didn't care about that. They only cared about accomplishing social goals. And what happened? The bank failed because it was a bad bank. That's the reason. There's nothing fancy. It was a really badly run bank, as it will be shown when the FDIC, if it does a, or the Fed, if it does a sincere and not a whitewash, if it does a sincere investigation and makes the result public, your listeners will read a report that shows this was not anything deserving of headlines. It was just a bad bank run by bad bankers. That's, that's the only takeaway of this discussion. Let me, let me ask you a couple of critical questions before, uh, before I have to move along, because I know that this is going to be on the minds of listeners. There's also been talk about the potentiality of, and I don't know what else to call it, but perhaps a, a smacking of a sense of insider trading in that some of the bank executives apparently sold off 
their holdings within scant days of the bank collapse and within a matter of, I think, under 48 hours of the collapse, they made sure that bonuses were paid to executives. Uh, it, it would seem to me that that's going to that's going to explode in a pretty significant fashion if it, tr- it turns out to be true, wouldn't it? Well, I have to agree halfway. You mentioned insider trading and you mentioned bonuses. They are two different topics. You're talking to a guy, and you're stuck with me, Craig. You're talking to a guy who thinks insider trading not only should be legal, it should be mandatory. But that's another show, Craig. It might be back. But as to the bonuses, um, that's a bit offensive. And there is talk already of what's called in the financial trade clawbacks where the regulators might very well be knocking on the doors of the big, bad, stupid bankers and saying, give back all that money while you were drinking at the company trough and give it back. So the the case, the chapter isn't ended yet as to the bonuses and the excessive salaries. Inside of trading, another conversation. All right, another question for you. I, I'm just fascinated by this. Uh, what about the notion of regulation? Clearly, this is going to be a topic amongst the uh, the members of Congress. I mentioned in uh, some of my remarks about some of the, the history related to Glass-Siegel, later on Dodd-Frank. Uh, we know that certainly Dodd-Frank here uh, a few years ago, in, in the estimation of some, was eviscerated by Congress, would you anticipate looking at more stringent regulations, particularly for some of these smaller banks? You know, we were on that scale of too big to fail, uh, too too small to care. Uh, Do we see an attempt again at further re-regulation of the banks? Well, this was, we have to uh, make a distinction between regulation, which is enacted by an agency, and supervision which is the enforcement of regulations. This appears to be, very early in the game, it appears to be one where the regulators, the California Fed, the regulators did a really crummy job in enforcing existing regulations. The regulations probably would have been sufficient had the regulators done a competent job. But the jury is still out. There's so much we don't know. But the audience ought to, if they follow along, pay attention to the distinction between supervision, which are the boots on the ground guys who are sitting in the bank checking stuff, versus regulations, which are the rules. I think the rules were adequate, except for mark to market, as we talked about. But the supervision was really crummy. And fortunately for the regulators, they're not allowed to get fired. It's a capital offense to fire a government employee. So all of the supervisors and the regulators and the bank examiners who did a crappy job, none of them will pay any price whatsoever because they're government workers and they're above reproach. Yeah, and we've talked about that in, in the past, and it, it's going to no doubt bear a, a follow-up conversation. So much to unpack here, Bob Zadek, and we appreciate you helping us to, to gain a little bit of an understanding as to what's going on here. And uh, I hope folks will continue to follow these stories. And to Bob's point, you know, you can have all the regulations uh, in the world and, say, the the food service industry. So the USDA uh, controls the way meat is handled and butchers are are butchering meat and so forth. But nobody ever bothers to show up to inspect to make sure the rules that are in place are being enforced. 
it all becomes pretty pointless, doesn't it? Hey, you want to get some good, compelling conversation? We invite you to check out Bob's show this Sunday morning, 8 o'clock on 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station. More information about Bob and his great work online at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. As always, Bob Zadek, we appreciate the time and the valuable insight. Coming up on uh, just a skosh before 6 o'clock here, about 10 before 6, let's get uh, a quick uh, brief time out here, and then we're going to come back with more of our conversation on this wet, rainy Tuesday, 21st day, day after the start of spring of March here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. There used to be a day and an age in this country when parental involvement and parental rights were critically important. I mean, after all, there's a sense that you've brought the child into the world. You're responsible for training that young man or young lady um, and raising them up and caring for them until they reach the the age of majority. And hopefully if you've done a good job and everything goes right, uh, they'll go on to live happy, productive lives and um, hopefully uh, repeat the process and bring you great grandchildren and great grandchildren. Right. Well, in recent years, the notion of parental rights seems to be eroding more and more, particularly in states like California, where there are members of the California state legislature that have concluded that uh, they know more about child rearing than you do, and so they're going to pass laws to restrict your rights. Well, one bill is working to try and at least restore a tiny smidgen of those rights. Assembly Bill 1314. To tell us more about this, we are joined by Brad Dacus. He is the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute and also a constitutional lawyer. And, Counselor, we've talked a lot in the past about uh, gender dysphoria and, and this, this trend that's been happening here in California for probably nearly 10 years now. Uh, it's reached a dizzying pace, not only stateside here in California, but across the nation. AB 1314, at least at my first glance, seems to try and bring back at least a little bit of parental involvement. Tell us more about this bill. Yeah, it does. It's a, it's a solid bill. We at Pacific Justice Institute, through our Center for Public Policy uh, Division, worked uh, with the, the assembly member to uh, put uh, the proper amendments uh, into this legislation. And our focus point was dealing with the fact that right now, Craig, as you well know, and if you've heard, uh, school districts, as a matter of policy, are hiding things and lying to parents when it comes to a student in a, in a classroom that uh, has self-professingly as a gender identity dysphoria or confusion. And, uh, you know, parents expect to be notified if a child has any kind of a uh, a condition or mental condition, uh, which, which that is, mental ide- uh, gender identity dysphoria. But instead, uh, school districts uh, are authorizing and, and telling teachers to lie to parents, to cover it up. Uh, even some will uh, have clothes at, at school that the child can dress into to look like the opposite gender. So this has been a big problem. Parents are ticked off. A lot of them have pulled their kids out of schools. Well, this legislation uh, would correct it by saying that if a teacher can t- uh, uh, notices that a child has gender identity uh, dysphoria or confusion, uh, that teacher has uh, must notify the parents of their observation or of this in three days. Uh, that is very significant because then it lets parents 
address it and deal with it as they see fit and uh, based on the fact that they know their child's background and uh, involvement and experiences. There's nothing genetic about this. This is experiential and mom and dad know more, much more about that child and their needs uh, than, than a teacher. Well, you know, and it's always struck me, and we've talked about this in the past, the, the absolute irony that a child can go into the school nurse and say, gee, my boyfriend has gotten me pregnant or I think that I'm pregnant. Uh, the nurse can help and provide a pregnancy test and the child expresses a desire to terminate the pregnancy even though they are well below the age of 18. Uh, all of that can uh, take place and it is against law. It's not a question of let's try and conceal it. It is against law for any of those details to be revealed to the parents. And yet that very same child presenting to that same nurse complaining of a headache cannot receive something as mundane as an aspirin without parental consent, which says to me this is less about looking after what is the, the best interest of protecting the child and, and rather uh, essentially telling the parents, hey, we know more about this than you you do yeah and man, many parents uh out there you know they know about what the children have gone through and uh, but also gender identity dysphoria is a um is an indicator oftentimes of past sexual abuse uh that uh, the parents may not even know about if they hide uh dysphoria and confusion from the parents that it handicaps the parents ability to to dig in and find out why the child's having those feelings to get counseling for the child uh to work with the child and a child who's affirmed by a school district and parents are lied to, uh, that's a terrible road to take because most children who are affirmed into gender identity dysphoria are not allowed to work through it or even get counseling um, have, have a dire mortality rate uh, as they grow up and, and will lose most of their, their lifetime. So it's, it's very, very serious. Parents need to know. And, uh, you know, we will see if this passes. But... One good news is that uh, Californians can be assured that we have an office in Sacramento. We weigh in heavily on bills through our Center for Public Policy to defend the constitutional rights of parents and religious freedom. And uh, we've stopped legislation in the past. And uh, our voice is uh, definitely respected because of the expertise of our attorneys uh, weighing in with these opinions. Um, I hate to ask this question, but what is your sense in terms of the, the likelihood of this thing passing and getting the gubernatorial signature? Um, miracles do happen. Uh, I've okay, seen miracles answer. happen. But, um, you know, right now with who we have in the legislature and the governorship, uh, it's not likely. But we're, we're going to go ahead and uh, submit it and uh, force those legislators to say one way or the other whether or not they believe parents have a right to know what's going on with their kids um, you know at least there's an element of, of public accountability for what they're pushing and what they support uh, but you know once again you know I've seen miracles happen I've seen things pass I've seen we've won big cases that I thought for sure we were going to lose uh, God is uh, has a big influence at the end of the day and we need to be praying for our legislators and and hopeful uh, and praying for for this legislation to go through on behalf of the many parents and their children who uh, would benefit from uh, you know, the tyranny of our public schools. You will undoubtedly be hearing more about Assembly Bill 1314, easy one to remember, 1314, the Gender Identity Parental Notification Act. And we appreciate the update from constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. More information available online at pacificjustice.org. Six o'clock from KFAX. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.